Well, hello again, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to be with you again, and it's just me with you again this week. Philip is off on assignment, as they say, but I think that just means he's having a couple of weeks off. And so that leaves me to address some issue of the day from the perspective of the Bible and the Gospel. And the question I want to talk about today is one that I've been interested in for quite some time. I wrote some articles about it back in the 90s and even a short book in the early 2000s. And I've been stimulated to think about it again recently by a new book that I've just read, a book by Al Stewart called The Manual, Getting Masculinity Right. But before we turn to Al's book and interact with it, I'd like to talk a little bit about my eldest brother. Bob is a knockabout Aussie kind of guy. He spent 20 years in the Navy. He spent 10 years driving a truck in his own milk delivery business. He's a man with a great deal of practical intelligence, Bob. He's a very clever man. And he likes to tease his younger brothers about them being useless, smart-aleck university types. Except he doesn't say the word aleck. In Bob's mind, there are two types of men. Those who would survive on the dystopian zombie drama The Walking Dead, and those who wouldn't. And there's no doubt which category I'm in. I would no doubt still be drafting a blog post about the implications of zombieism when they started eating my brain. I suppose you could say, in comparison with Bob, I'm more of a smooth man than an hairy man, a bit more of a Jacob than an Esau. Then again, Jacob was an interesting sort of guy. He was a mummy's boy who hung around in tents and liked to cook. But he was also an intrepid traveller, a hard-working entrepreneur, a canny negotiator. Very few people ever got the better of Jacob, not in the long run anyway. He was the kind of man who wrestled all night with God and refused to yield. So was Jacob less of a man than Esau, or just a different sort of man? Would Jacob have survived The Walking Dead, perhaps by persuading the zombies to eat his brother? Just what sort of thing is it to be a man? What sort of thing is masculinity? Is it defined by certain tastes? Is it football, fishing and meat pies, as opposed to poetry, and guitar playing and salads? If so, I'm confused, because I enjoy all those things. Or is masculinity perhaps about certain personality traits or physical attributes? It's all a bit hard to say. Because although it is obvious, perhaps beyond obvious, that men are somehow different from women, what constitutes that difference is tough to nail down precisely. And this has led our culture in some very interesting and somewhat contradictory directions over the past several decades. If we go back, say, 40 years to the heyday of third-wave feminism, the culturally popular way to answer the question about masculinity was to say that Whatever differences did exist between men and women were cultural, were purely the result of cultural conventions and prejudices, and that therefore there was nothing in principle a man could do that a woman could not also do if given the chance, and possibly better. We just needed to get over ourselves, get over our sexism and our cultural prejudice. Are men brave and courageous warriors? Well, why can't women be that too? Are men leaders and CEOs and firefighters and football stars? Well, women can be that too, and probably should be. 
The trend was to flatten the distinctions, in other words, between male and female, and to insist that we were all just people and that everyone should be treated the same way and afforded the same opportunities and so on, that glass ceilings needed to be shattered. And if there was something that men were prominent in or seemed to be good at, then why not women? Now, we won't go into the strengths and weaknesses, the positives and negatives of this brand of equality feminism, I suppose you could call it, at this point, except to say that its main ideas really have become a normal and accepted part of our culture. It's why we are all supposed to care so very much about professional women's football and cricket these days. It's why nearly every lead detective in a British crime drama now is a woman. And it's why Galadriel in the Amazon series The Rings of Power, for those of you who might have caught up with that, it's why she's such a strange and kind of dissatisfying character because she really is the epitome of the powerful woman, but she kind of comes across as a male character in a dress. She's steely-eyed, hot-tempered, obsessed with her goals. She's a peerless warrior. She's so biased towards action and fighting as the solution to most problems that you'd almost think she was a man, except, of course, she's not. And I think we're all supposed to cheer for Gladriel and think that she's a wonderful, powerful woman, but... Maybe it's just me, but it all feels a bit fake and kind of played out. Anyway, third wave feminism led to some very interesting challenges for men from the 1980s onwards, say. If pointing out differences between men and women was now chauvinism and sexism and there was nothing distinctively masculine that couldn't just as well be feminine, then what on earth did it mean to be a man? Did it mean anything at all? Does our family now have kind of two dads, or is it two mums, and is there any difference between those things? Well, since then, I guess you could say the landscape has only become more complicated, if that's possible. Because the main tenet of today's brand of feminism, I guess what you'd call identity politics feminism, is not so much to flatten the distinctions between men and women as to magnify them. It seems that masculinity exists again, but now it exists mostly to be belittled or attacked. You can put the adjective toxic in front of masculinity in a way that you really can't do with femininity. In today's world, it's still sexist to make generalisations or stereotypical descriptions of women as a class, but men, it's perfectly fine to stereotype men and frequently in a negative way, either as touchingly useless morons or as controlling, abusive dominators. You could say that masculinity is a thing again. It's just not a terribly good or attractive thing. Now, it's a brave man, you might say, who ventures into this confusing and conflicted landscape and seeks to rescue the idea of masculinity from its cultural despisers, and put forward a positive vision of what masculinity is and could be. And that's what Al Stewart has done in this new book of his called The Manual, Getting Masculinity Right. And I think he's done it very well. He succeeds in being warm and funny and real, which those of you who know Al will know that that's just what he's like. He talks about the challenges and joys of being a man these days. He doesn't ignore the problems that men commonly face or the evils that men commonly perpetrate. 
And he doesn't hark back to some golden age where men were men and try to recreate that somehow. He keeps turning to God. He keeps turning to the creator of men and masculinity to listen to what he has to say about the good thing that he's created. And he drives his argument towards Jesus, the man who came to rescue and deliver men and women from their sins and failings and to present a vision of true humanity that we can follow. In the first half of the book, Al looks at the cultural moment in which men find themselves. He looks at the common attacks on masculinity that we've been discussing and at the particular challenges men face in growing up from boyhood to manhood. He also interacts, interestingly, with some of the psychological and sociological research that seeks to understand what the descriptors masculine and feminine really refer to. He cites the work of Alan Medinger, who suggests that the masculine can only really be understood in relation to the feminine, and that this happens along four continuums, or should I say continua? Anyway, I'll say continuums or kind of scales. There's firstly the outer directed versus the inner directed. That is, the masculine is more oriented to things in the world, to exploring and building and overcoming. The feminine is more activated by the inner life of sensing and knowing and feeling and relating. There's secondly, initiation versus response. The masculine tends to start projects, invent things, initiate relationships. The feminine tends to respond, to encourage, to join. There's leadership versus cohesion. The masculine strives to lead and push things forward. The feminine is more oriented to holding things together. And there's truth versus mercy or compassion. The masculine seeks truth, stands on principle, thinks about the long-term consequences of things. The feminine is more moved and activated by compassion and by immediate human need. Overall, the suggestion is the masculine is more oriented to doing, the feminine is more oriented to being. Now, the point that Al takes from all of this is that we are all at various points along these continuums and that we all exhibit both masculine and feminine traits to some extent. It's not as if women never initiate or invent things or care about the truth or do things. It's not that men are never encouraging or compassionate or activated by an inner life. However, the point seems to be that in pretty much universal human experience, men do cluster more at one end of these continuums and women at the other. The masculine traits tend to predominate in men and the feminine traits in women, and this happens across time and across cultures. Now, it seems to me that our problem culturally over the past 40 years or so is that we either deny this insight or else interpret it in an entirely negative way. What I mean is that on the one hand, third wave feminism, the equality feminism of the 80s and so on, it denied the existence of these traits, or at least any sense that they should or do predominate by nature in one sex or the other. Women can and should be just as outer-directed, activist and leadership-focused as men. And to suggest otherwise is apparently to say that women are inferior. 
which seems a strange conclusion to draw, as if the masculine traits are somehow the superior ones. But on the other hand, the more recent intersectional or identity politics feminism does accept the reality of masculine traits and that they predominate in men, it just sees them mostly in negative and ugly terms, almost as the ugly extremes on these continuums, as violence and coercion and greed and domination and rape culture and so on. It's as if men as a class have been pushed down to the dysfunctional, ugly end of each of these continuums. Now, Al's treatment of this whole quite delicate subject is good. It's impressive. He resists the temptation to caricature and to cheap shots, and yet he does succeed in naming something that seems obviously true, some realities that we do experience every day. And he does so in a way that not only critiques the current distortions of those things, but points to a hopeful and holistic way forward. All the same, there are certainly some questions he doesn't get to and leaves unanswered. If you happen to be one of those men with more than the average share of feminine traits, if you exist on the continuum just a little bit further to one side than many men, does that mean that you should seek to display more of the masculine traits? Or should you just accept that the mix of things that you have is a little bit different? And ditto for women, of course. Al doesn't really address these questions head on. His main purpose is to redeem masculine traits as good and worthwhile, to encourage men to embrace them, rather than to see them as our society tends to do as evil or non-existent. He wants to urge men to man up, as he puts it, for the sake of other people, to live out their masculinity in a godly, loving way in the various relationships they find themselves in. In some ways, the first half of the book, the first half of the manual, reads like a wiser, funnier, more biblical Jordan Peterson. It looks at the nature of men and masculinity as creational realities and seeks, in wisdom, to understand those realities. The Bible's framing of this wisdom is seen as important, but it's not overplayed. And this is a strength because the Bible has surprisingly little to say about masculinity or manhood per se. As Al explores that subject in the first half of the book, he doesn't try to squeeze more out of the scriptural lemon than is there. He points to how God has answers for the problems and struggles that men face, and that the Bible does teach men how to be godly men in the various relationships we are in, but he leaves the detail of those answers to later in the book. Early on, however, he does propose a definition of healthy masculinity that serves as the driving theme of the book. He says, Healthy masculinity is a willingness to take responsibility and use the power you have to care for and nurture those around you. I'll read you that again. Healthy masculinity is a willingness to take responsibility and use the power you have to care for and nurture those around you. In this sense, healthy masculinity is a version of healthy humanity, I suppose you could say, because this is what humans were created for, to love God and to love their neighbours. But we do this as men and women. And the second half of the book teases out how men in particular should do these things in the various relationships that they inhabit. 
And that's why the second half of the book has a lot more Bible in it, because it deals with the subjects that the Bible has a lot more to say about, namely the relational contexts in which men are husbands or brothers or sons or fathers or workmates. Al turns to these many passages in the second half of the book as he explores what it means to be a man to live out a healthy masculinity in all of these different spheres. And it's really well done. It's driven by the biblical passages. It's good-humoured and wise and compassionate in the way that these passages are applied. And it concludes with a really powerful challenge to follow the man, the man Jesus, who makes living as a good man possible. I'm pleased that Al has been man enough to write this book, if I can put it like that. It exemplifies what he himself argues that masculinity is really about, taking responsibility to use whatever resources or strength or wisdom you have at your disposal for the sake of others. And the others who will benefit from this book are many, I think. I've already read and discussed it with male trainees at Campus Bible Study. To much profit, we really enjoyed the discussion and were stimulated by it. And I'd really like to see every young man in our churches read it, I think. Or better yet, see them get together with some older men to read it and talk through together. And it's also the kind of book you could give to a non-Christian friend and have a great conversation about. And if the kind of man you have in mind to read this book is not really a reader, then there is an audio version, an audible version coming in the new year, apparently. And I think I might even send that to my brother, Bob. Well, there are some thoughts about masculinity and the manual. The easiest and cheapest way to buy the manual is in quantity. If you buy two or more of them direct from Matthias Media, you get quite a discount. You get 20% off if you buy two up to 24 copies, or you get 40% off if you buy 25 copies or more. So let me encourage you to take advantage of that. Never mind betting with mates, try some reading with mates, especially of this book. Now, there were a number of little rabbit holes that I didn't go down in this post because there's just too many rabbit holes. One of them has to do with British crime drama, British cop shows that I mentioned briefly at one point. I think there's a PhD there for someone to write on the presentation of gender among detectives in British crime dramas, 1980 to 2020, as a barometer of social and cultural change. Uh, Ali and I love our British cop shows. We flop down often on the weekend in front of one of them. Uh, way back in the 80s, I remember we started with shows like The Bill, uh, then on through Prime Suspect, uh, A Touch of Frost, Silent Witness, Lewis, and all the rest of them, down to the more recent series like Vera and Unforgotten, uh, Shetland, we quite like. Scott and Bailey was pretty good. Line of Duty, of course, is very popular, and so on and so forth. Now, it's kind of impossible not to notice the steady feminization of the British police force as far as it's represented on TV over this period. And these days, I'd say it's very much the exception that a male character would be the lead detective. Or if he is, he's kind of a compromised character. He'll either be a kind of highly dysfunctional sort of nightmarish character who's constantly being rescued by his female sidekick. And I'm thinking of David Tennant's character in Broadchurch. Or else he's a more sensitive male soul who's constantly being crushed emotionally by the demands of the job, like Kenneth Branagh's character in Wallander, or the Douglas Henschel character, 
Jimmy Perez in Shetland. But mostly these days, it's women who lead the investigation. They're often, but not invariably, lesbian, and the men are their faithful sidekicks. If there's a really useless, incompetent officer in the show who's always cutting corners or letting the team down in some way, it will always be a man. And there's also frequently a kind of male dinosaur left in the office who resents not being in charge and hates taking orders from a woman and so on. And this is just so we don't forget that this is the attitude we must avoid. Now, many of these shows are really excellent. We've always enjoyed Vera. We love Unforgotten. And Scott and Bailey was pretty good, I thought. But there's a kind of formulaic orthodoxy to it all, to the way that men and women are portrayed, that, ironically, is every bit as stereotyped and sort of chauvinistic as the male-dominated culture that it's seeking to leave behind. Now, when Ali was reading a draft of this post, she looked at me with a quizzical look and said, so you're glad you've got that off your chest, have you? I suspect she's... <laughs> I suspect she's hoping that she might be able to enjoy our Saturday night crime drama watching in peace from now on without me interrupting the flow with one of my rants about all this. Anyway, I think that might do us for this week. Thanks so much for being here again on Two Ways News and thanks for the feedback that you keep sending in. There's been some great questions and interaction come in recently on some of our recent editions and we'll be dealing with some of those in a Q&A kind of style thing in the next couple of weeks sometime. So thanks for the interaction and please do keep on sending in your thoughts and comments. You can just drop me an email at tonyjpain at me.com or you can hit reply to the email version of the podcast or newsletter that you get in your inbox uh, and just let us know what you're thinking that way. If you're not getting that email yet and you'd like to get a regular email version of Two Ways News, which means you can have the text version there to browse through, uh, or you can listen to the podcast version within the email as well, then go across to the website. It's twoways.news and sign up and subscribe. You can sign up for free. It doesn't cost anything at all. There's also an option to become a supporter, to chip in a few dollars to help us keep doing this, and you can pursue that as well if you'd like to. But otherwise, it's free to sign up and get on the list, and I'd encourage you to do that. Well, that will do for this week. Thanks again for being here, and I look forward to your comments and thoughts on the subject of this edition. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.